welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. As always, if you would like to make a comment, you have a suggestion or maybe a question, write to me at carlareadstheclassics at gmail.com. Anchor users, please feel free to leave me a voice message. And now let's move on with Theodore Pratt's The Money, Segment 5. They hadn't cared for him, nor his objection to their presence and their clubhouse, but they didn't like to see him the way he was now, and they felt they would miss him. They met at the clubhouse as usual the next morning at nine o'clock. Paul brought a clipping from the morning newspaper with him. It's about what happened. We'll have a meeting and you can read it, said George. They trooped inside the clubhouse and took their formal seating positions, and the door was open so Paul could see to read, in a rather stilted tone, laboring slightly over a few words or phrases. Late yesterday afternoon, the body of Alfred Wesley, 77, was found in the hallway of his home on Coventry Road, Buckingham Hills. He had been dead for approximately five days. Due to the condition of the body, an autopsy was performed immediately, and police surgeons reported death was due to a heart attack. The body was found by children playing nearby. That's us, said Henny. Mr. Wesley, Paul continued, was an old-time resident, living here all his life. He was born in his house, built when this section was well out in the country. For many years, he owned and operated a leading jewelry store, now Tempers, which he sold 16 years ago when he retired. At one time, he was an officer of the former First Bank and Trust Company. But in the depression of the 30s, when it failed and he was said to have lost a considerable amount of money, he resigned from banking interests. Following that, he conducted the business of his store and owned the office building in which it was housed, which he later sold, as well as other parcels of downtown real estate. Since his wife died, shortly after his retirement, he has been something of a recluse. No known relatives survive. $367 in cash was found on Mr. Wesley's body. The money will be used for simple burial in Greenwood Cemetery. The body is at the Franklin Funeral Home. Services will be conducted there at 3.30 tomorrow afternoon. Paul looked up from the clipping. That's all? asked George. That's it, Paul reported. I thought there'd be more, said Gracie. I thought it'd have our names, Henny said. He sounded disappointed. We found him. Joey asserted. He sounded aggrieved. My father, Paul told them, says that if he didn't leave a will, and he probably didn't, his house and land will go to the state, who'll auction it off to the highest bidder, and it'll probably be bought for the hills, but it'll take a long time. Are the police going to do any more? asked George. I don't know, said Paul. He held up the clipping. Do you think we ought to keep this? They considered the obituary. Maybe we can hang it on the wall, suggested Henny. We ought to keep it, Joey agreed. As the secretary, 
Gracie put in. I say it ought to go in our record book. We haven't got anything in it, and that will be a good start. I'll paste it in. George nodded. It's a good idea. Gracie took the clipping from Paul and put it in her notebook, which she kept inside her chair, planning to take it home that night and paste it. Her chair was set on its side, making it a good place to keep things. You know something? asked George. They looked at him. It said he didn't have any relations, Paul corrected. It said relatives. Annoyed, George went on. That means there won't be anybody at his funeral. Gee, said Joey, I wouldn't want to die and not have anybody at my funeral. It doesn't seem right, Paul admitted. Henny turned to George. You mean we should go? Gracie answered for him. Why not? Henny considered. Maybe he wouldn't like it. He didn't like us. Maybe he wouldn't want us at his funeral. I don't think he'd mind, said Paul. Things are different now. I think he'd like it, said Joey. Sure he would, said Gracie, especially with nobody else there. We'll go, decided George. Tomorrow afternoon. Two questions about attendance rose at once. Henny wondered if you had to be invited. It was decided that they didn't think so. Anybody could go to a funeral unless it said not, and this one didn't say not. Gracie wondered if they should tell their folks they were going. A negative decision on this followed immediately. The less adults knew about what they were doing, the better. That was an inflexible rule, the first tenet of their corporate being. Later that morning, two new men arrived in an unmarked car and stopped in front of the old house. They got out and went up to the door and inside. They remained there a long time, almost till noon. The children waited and watched and speculated. What do you think they're doing? asked Henny. That's easy, George replied. They're searching for maybe a will or some other records. A startling thought came to him at the same time it reached the others. Or maybe for money. I don't mean Joey's millions, but some money. A thrill of fear went through them that others might find the fortune they had more or less decided might be in the house. There was a general feeling that it belonged to them, not to anyone else. They watched carefully then when the men came out. They looked dusty, but they weren't carrying anything. One man went out to the car, but the other, glancing at the children standing before the clubhouse, came over to them. He was a short, rather brusque man who introduced himself. I'm Detective Brawley. You kids, Joey interrupted. You mean you're a real detective? Detective Brawley nodded. You kids are the ones who found him. Eagerly, several voices replied, That's right. According to the report, that was the first time you ever entered the house. Is that right, too? He searched their faces when they nodded and replied in the affirmative. Sharply, he asked, You sure about that? They were sure. You never took anything out of the house? They never had. Ever see anybody else go in and take anything? Never. Did Mr. Wesley have people visit him? They told him about Mr. Wesley. He nodded and looked at them as if finally satisfied. But one among them was not. This was Joey. He was jumping again. He could not contain himself. He asked in an excited voice, Did you find it? Detective Brawley asked, Find what? The money! Money? George said of Joey, excusing him. 
He thinks things up. Detective Brawley regarded them. Where did you hear of any money? Quickly, Gracie said, we haven't. Indicating Joey, Paul assured him. He makes up stories. All the time, said Henny. Detective Brawley glanced at Joey, who thought up things and made up stories. There isn't any money. Or, anyway, if there is, we didn't find it, and we took the place apart. We have to search a place like this after what happened as a routine thing, just in case something turns up. He looked over at the house and dusted his hands. I can pretty well tell you there isn't any money. You don't hide much of anything from us. He smiled at them, looked at their clubhouse, and observed, You got a nice shack there. After making that flattering remark, he turned and joined his companion in the car, and they drove away. After that, after they had gone, George scolded Joey. Why'd you have to say a thing like that? Defensively, Joey replied, I found out they didn't find it, didn't I? Disgustedly, Henny said, There isn't anything to find, not after what they did. They are experts, and they searched, and there wasn't anything. This made the musketeers somewhat downcast. It also showed how seriously they had been taking the possibility of there being money in the old man's house they might find. Now that prospect was dampened, if not altogether discredited. The next afternoon, well before 3.30, they presented themselves at the Franklin Funeral Home. It was a hot day, and they were perspiring and rather breathless when they arrived, for the address, which they had looked up in the telephone book, was farther away from Buckingham Hills than they had figured, and they walked all the way to save bus fare. The black-suited attendant, just inside the doors where the air conditioning hit them like a blessed thing, regarded them doubtfully. He took in their blue jeans or shorts, sneakers, and the rest of their costumes, and even though Gracie had tucked her shirt inside her jeans for the event, he didn't think much of them. His questioning stare made them uncomfortable, and George felt constrained to say, "'He was a friend of ours.' This was not true, but it seemed a good thing to say all the same. At least the attendant accepted it because he could not very well question it, not when it was a matter of death. There was something holy as well as awful about death that made you respect everything in regard to it. They started to go into the main sizable chapel straight in front of them, but the attendant barred their way in that direction and ushered them to the left. Here, a doorway led into a tiny room, probably the smallest in the place. They could see the casket at the other end, not very far away, and were relieved to see that it was closed. There was a good reason for that. There was also a second question. The coffin was made of wood sprayed with gray paint, and had square ends, and was such a cheap one that no provision was made in its plain construction for part of the cover to be opened and laid back. The attendant started to usher them to the few chairs placed in the room when Paul said, We ought to sign the book. Book? asked Henny. They've got a book. Paul explained, where everybody who comes signs their names. It's called the guest register. I saw it at my grandmother's funeral. They turned to the attendant with accusation as though he had been cheating them. 
A pained expression came over his face, as if he regretted their knowing about this, perhaps because it meant the waste of a guest register. Silently, he indicated the stand just to the side of the door, holding a book marked with these words. George signed first with something of a flourish. Then Gracie signed neatly. Henny labored over each letter of his name, writing as though tracing something. Paul signed slowly, but firmly and legibly. Joey had to stretch to be able to sign at all, and he scrawled. They were then ushered into the room holding the coffin. There were only three rows of chairs, of three on each side. They chose the right side, one row back from the front, George, Gracie, and Paul sitting forward, and Henny and Joey in the row back of them. The gray coffin was bare. There were no flowers, but soft heavenly music played from an unseen source, and they were glad of that. They sat, touched and subdued by the funeral atmosphere. They looked at the coffin and knew Mr. Wesley was in it. They remembered him as they had last seen him. They recalled the things he had shouted at them and what they had cried back. Henny remembered slapping him, and this made him feel sinful and guilty, and he blushed with shame. He tried to think of the harsh things Mr. Wesley had said, but they didn't make him feel much better. Gracie leaned half around so all of them could hear her whisper, "'Maybe we should have sent some flowers.' "'We didn't have the money,' said Paul. "'We could have picked some somewhere,' Gracie said. Henny pointed out, "'It's too late now.' A second funeral man, this one younger than the other, but dressed in the same way in black, came in and glanced at them. He half smiled and with their acute, direct sense of the true attitude of people, both young and old, the children had the impression that his smile was not one of beatification, but of slight amusement. They wondered at this. No one else attended. In a little while, a minister in a white lace surplice came in and took his place behind a stand at one end of the coffin. He carried a Bible with him in which he had one finger stuck into a place, and he opened this and put it on the stand, and he looked at the children with some interest. He glanced to one side as if conferring with someone there, and then he cleared his throat and began a prayer. The children bowed their heads and closed their eyes while he prayed. It made Joey feel dizzy, and he thought he was going to keel over, but he only swayed a little and stayed up. When the minister was through praying, they opened their eyes and lifted their heads and listened to something more he had to say, reading most of it out of the Bible. He said quite a bit about dust to dust and ashes to ashes and death not being the end, but the beginning, and that no matter what a person may have been in his life, God was there at the end to take him into the kingdom of heaven. It was comforting, and the children were glad Mr. Wesley was going where these good things would happen. After this, the minister prayed some more, and the children lowered their heads again and closed their eyes during the prayer, and Joey felt dizzy again. And after that, it was over, or at least the minister went out. They sat there until the first man came in and said the service was finished and they were to step out of the room. They stepped out and in the hall and they met the younger man. He said to them, You're the ones who found him in his house, aren't you? They said they were. And the second man commented, And you've come to his services. We're going to the cemetery too, said George. The man glanced at them. 
He seemed surprised as though he had not expected this. Then he gave the same kind of smile he smiled before and said, We hadn't planned a guest car to the grave, but since you're here, we'll send you in one. He spoke to the first man who went away. The children didn't say anything. The second man went to the guest register, looked at the open page where only their names were signed, closed it, picked it up, and brought it back to them. As if instinctively recognizing George as their leader, he handed it to him, saying, You might like to have this as a memento. Then he ushered them out a side door where a hearse was waiting. They were already loading the casket into the hearse. In a moment, a long black car drove up in the back of the hearse, and the man stepped to this and opened both doors on the side away from the driver, indicating to the children that they were to get in. Still silently, they got in. The man closed the doors, the windows of which were open. Henny asked, "'Aren't you coming?' The man shook his head. I have other things to do here, but the car will drive you back to where you live. They didn't know whether or not to thank him for this, and said nothing. The first man in the dark clothes got in the hearse beside its driver, and it began to move. The driver of their big black car followed it. They headed out into the street, and then up it, with traffic stopping for them, giving them the right of way. They drove for quite a while and then reached the cemetery. Here they drove around roads so narrow it was difficult for the cars to negotiate them. They stopped near a freshly dug grave. The minister was already there, evidently having driven his own car ahead of them. He looked annoyed as if this was not part of his bargain, but when the children got out of the car and walked slowly over to the grave, his expression of annoyance left him and he looked properly solemn. The five musketeers lined up before the grave with the minister on the other side. Men appeared carrying the casket, which they placed on a kind of trestle set over the grave. Two more men, workmen in green jumpers connected with the cemetery, also appeared and stood by. The first man came to stand near the children as if to see they behaved themselves or to be sure everything went off all right. Paul was nearest to him and he whispered, is Mr. Wesley going to have a headstone? Stiffly, the man replied, I'm afraid there is not enough money for that. They felt more sorry for Mr. Wesley than ever. The minister began to pray again, and for a third time the children bowed their heads and closed their eyes, and Joey felt dizzy. At the cemetery here they felt more reverent than in the funeral home. Mr. Wesley, inside the gray wooden casket, was going into the ground forever, never to be seen by anybody again. He had left his old house finally, and would not rage at them and their clubhouse even once more. The prayer stopped. The two men in the green jumpers began to operate something, and then, very slowly, the casket began to descend into the earth. It kept on until it was out of sight. There was a pause. Then the minister reached down and picked up a handful of freshly dug earth. He leaned over and dropped it into the grave on top of the casket. He indicated to the children that they could do the same if they wanted to. George picked up some earth and dropped it. Henny followed, and then Paul. Gracie held back until they had done this, and then she went forward and picked up some earth. 
as she dropped it into the grave and she heard it land with a clunking sound on top of the casket, she suddenly burst out crying. Joey right behind her, holding a handful of earth, threw it with force into the grave and then he too, inspired by her, broke into sobs. Gracie, crying heartbrokenly, ran to the car, followed by the sobbing Joey. The others, with lumps in their throats, walked to the car. Their enemy and neighbor and friend, Mr. Wesley, was dead and almost buried. End of segment five.